Hello and welcome to this uh, week's episode of the Build Value by Choice podcast show. I am your host, Nana Bonsu, and I have with me today our guest, Amy Words. Amy is a consultant with a family business consulting group specializing in shareholder value enhancement, business planning processes, and transition implementation of management, leadership, or ownership of a business. Her passion stands from growing up in her grandparents' second-generation business, surrounded by the wonderfully complex matters a family business presents. Amy brings a diverse range of experience to family enterprises by serving in various roles, such as as an exit planning advisor, collaborative lawyer, mediator, arbitrator, lecturer, and teacher. While she is no longer practicing law, Today, Amy focuses on providing creative solutions to family business engagements and presenting to relevant audiences. She also helps business owners use their advisors as a resource team to create optimal value. Amy serves on the advisory board for Newcomer Farms located in Bryan, Ohio, M&D Farms located in Napoleon, more industries in Montpellier, Ohio, and Neil's Design in Cincinnati, Ohio. She frequently speaks on the topic of of family business succession at conferences, including the Jellystone Symposium back in 2018 and 19. Also at the Association of Recreational Vehicle Parks and Campgrounds National Conference, Carolina Association of RV Parks and Campgrounds Conference, the Ohio Campground Association Conference, and the Wisconsin Association of Camp Ground Owners Conference Expo. Some of her other speaking engagements include Executive Women in Agriculture in November of 2016 and 17, the Top Producers Farm Journal, and the Ohio State University Extension Women in Agriculture Conference in March 2019 and 2015. Amy is married with two children and lives in a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you very much. I appreciate you inviting me and giving me this opportunity to talk to your listeners. Yeah, that's great. So, so your your background and your uh, focus is, is really interesting because normally, you know, we ran into, uh, we tend to meet a lot more uh, advisors and experts in the areas of businesses that tend to, you know, change hands with people outside of business. Your main focus is generational transfers right. uh, and you being a second generation uh, business uh, owner or, or successor yourself. Um, what is the, how is the world of generational transfers different from the regular business uh, transfers, whether it's, um, whether it's passing it down to management team or employees, just people outside the business or even selling that right? How, how does that world, how does your world differ from that world? So some of it's the same, right? Some of it's the, you know, how much money can I get for the labor I put into the business and how do I quantify that? And why is it important? That stuff is all the same for a seller that's selling to anybody. The the complexity that's added to that is, all right, so now I know what it's worth. Does it really matter when I'm doing intergenerational transfers? A, um, they give you a lot of pushback about, you know, well, our kids don't have the money to buy it from us, right? We know that whatever this comes out to be, they're not going to buy it at the price that the appraiser puts it at. So why should we do it in the first place? So there's a lot of explanation about tax planning and and why you need to know that number. 
And some explanation around, you know, it depends how you look at this. Is it going to all your children? If it is going to all your children, why? Like, are they all working there? Can they get along? Um, the, the added layers that we we encounter in family intergenerational transfers are the family relationships inside of the transfer. Then how does that impact planning for ownership? And then how does that impact the management team? So often we have to govern and support all three systems. We teach at FBCG that a family owner always is balancing their family system, their ownership system, and their management, management or leadership team systems. And then we often add into that governance. So they may be balancing and trying to keep the health of governance as well. We use governance to help them manage those systems as well, both business governance and family governance. And so we look at those decisions, that valuation, value building, value enhancing within all of those systems. When I'm working with a non-family business, because I do that, I focus and, and market only to family businesses, but I get referred to non-family businesses too. Um, my focus is on really one, one entity of the family system. Mainly it's usually one um, one generation. And we talk about wealth generation and how to teach wealth generation to the next gen. Because not all family businesses transfer inside the family. I am seeing, um, I am seeing families approaching success from a different conversation. Um, the sense that you have to keep one entity in order to be successful for seven, 10, 12 generation, that conversation is changing. It's changing to how are we going to grow, manage, and harvest wealth? similar to what we do in the exit planning community, right? And maybe harvest and manage is liquidating the current thing that they do. So if they're a hardware store, right? And in their hardware store chain, they now own seven shopping centers. It's really a family enterprise that has more wealth and land than they do selling hardware, right? So is it that we keep the land and we sell the operations of running hardware stores. And we take that money and allow the next generation to go add on businesses they're interested in. So we, we have a totally different conversation. And there are liquidity events that don't involve the family buying the business. So I don't know if that helps you kind of change um, your view of the conversations we have inside families versus outside families. Yeah, I, mean, I think I think it's uh, it does. And, and that actually, it's, it's kind of interesting. It also, you know, brings to light the, the the complex tapestry, you know, just the relationships and, and the decision-making. And one of the things that I find interesting about what you just said was, it looks like, because normally, you know, folks' identity have so strongly tied into the business, right? Yes. That, yeah. You know, how are you able to then convince, you know, it seems like folks are becoming more open to, instead of being focused on what kind of business they're in and how the owner dreamed of, always been in the hardware business and that's just, you know, you know, this this XYZ family and we we had the hardware family, it's more on the lines of the vehicle for wealth generation could be anything. It, you know, you, we just got to adapt with the different times. And you know, once they focus on the wealth uh, preservation throughout the generation, then the vehicle, whether it's a hardware store or they need to liquidate and go to something else, 
becomes different. It's just a matter of finding the, the right advisor to help them navigate that decision process. Yeah, it also has to do with what generation they're in. You're, you're typically not going to have that conversation going from first to second. You're more likely to have that conversation. So let's say first is a husband-wife team. They, they grow the business. Then it's going to a sibling team, right? And that sibling team could be one of five that's actually running it. And the other five are investors like patient capital holders that you know sit on the sidelines or maybe three of the five are doing it. When we get to cousins, the bigger the shareholder group, the less likely that the majority of the shareholders are going to work in an operating business, right? So, you know, once you get to, I mean, at FBCG, we have some shareholder groups that are 250 people. And, and that's like sixth generation or fifth generation. So it's second, third cousins that are owning, right? Their attachment to the sentimentality of what they do completely changes. The reason they own completely changes, right? And so having the conversation with the generations that are lower or, or, or you know, further down the bloodline is much easier. Having a conversation like we're talking about with you know, mom and dad started the business, grew the business. Now we're holding that and growing it and changing it. That usually only comes in when there's conflict, when there's a lot of conflict between that sibling group. And then, you know, as a result, they decide they don't want to own together, right? They don't want to own that business together or the business is in, you know, like such a great place. And they're like, look, we really, you know, we don't have kids that are going to want to work in this business what we need to do is harvest the West out of this business, create a family office, and then provide opportunities for the next generation that have no, no interest in plastic molding, right? They're not going to do that. So let's look at it differently. That's kind of how we talk about it. And we normalize, I think Family Business Consulting Group normalizes that that will eventually change from a family that owns a hardware store, right? And that's how we identify ourselves to a family enterprise that may own, I'm going to just throw this out, started a nursing home business. Now they own a nursing home business. They own 12 assisted living communities. They're real estate dominated and they have an insurance company. They have a pharmacy company. They have a food delivery company because it all married into the original business. But running and owning nursing homes right now sucks. <laughs> like, you can't get staff. The profitability keeps getting slashed every day from regulations and, you know, keeping employees is next to impossible. And, you know, the money on the nursing homes gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So that family could say, you know what, we're going to keep the following businesses. We're going to keep our real estate, but we're going to sell the operation of the nursing homes. We're going to keep the assisted living apartments. We're going to keep the hospice. We're going to keep the insurance, da, da, da. But we're going to get rid of the least profitable section of our business because we're an enterprise. We no longer are a family that just owns nursing homes. See the difference? Yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, clear. Yeah, thanks. And mm -hmm. uh, I may have forgotten to mention that the topic of this episode is why uh, valuation uh, metrics matter to uh, um, family businesses. So I want to dive a little bit into. Um, your valuation methodology and and the different you know the different ways you go about calculating it based on the uh, the different type of situations and events. Um, now, 
can you share with us um, just how differently you approach the, um, the subject of uh, business valuation when it comes to family businesses? Sure. So the subject of valuation is a challenging subject in family business. Um, the, the, what I teach the families I work with is, you know, the IRS says that valuation is based on a formula that's called fair market value. I go into the definition of what a fair market value is. It's a willing seller and a willing buyer, and we exchange a price. It's an arm's length transaction, and <clears throat> you know, it's market driven, right? It's based on a lot of market data. And value builder and mouse and value exploration or experts go out there, they collect that data, they do the comparisons, they do a walkthrough. They, and they look at, you know, not only the comparisons, but where are you at? What's your size? What's your location? What's your human capital, social capital, um, customer capital? And this in the last one, help me. Uh, shareholder capital. Shareholder capital. Thank you. <laughs> so I know it's like, ah, I got to pull that out. Um, so, you know, and, and they and they have a very traditional approach to that in my world, in family business world. That conversation gets incredibly dicey. Okay. The issues of discounts and the issues of sweat equity and taxation drive how we define how we're going to value a business at, at transfer very heavily. There is a lot of education as to why we even need a valuation and what are transfer options? Like, why do we need a valuation if we're going to just gift the majority of the shares to our children? Well, it depends when you gift, right? If you gift when you're alive, the IRS is going to make you file a gift tax filing, which requires evaluation to back it up so that the IRS doesn't come in and slap you around in an audit. Okay, so that's important. The other thing is most of my families have more than one child, okay? So if you have more than one child and not all of them are getting equal ownership of this business, in order to educate the next generation on the transfer of wealth from the owning generation to the next generation, it is nice to be able to discuss the value of the business. And to be transparent about the whys and hows you're making your decision. Okay, so I just said something that's kind of unique for most families. One, talking about what's going to happen to you after you die is hard. Two, talking about money is incredibly hard. And depending on your culture, depending on how your family, and I don't, I'm not meaning whether you're Japanese or German or American, I'm talking about like intimate family sociology, right? Whether or not you ever talk about money is just so unique to every nucleus family. How you talk about money, when you talk about money, it's huge, right? I teach my families that waiting until after you're dead for your next generation to hear what's gonna happen with the business is cowardice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because what, you're yeah. leaving it to that fiduciary to talk about stuff that you refuse to talk about and you're not there to explain the why. And typically you're gonna start a fight. And then that's how I do it. I teach my families to be very conscientious, 
have the meetings ahead of time in family settings, share appropriate information. I'm not talking about opening up your bank accounts. I'm talking about how high level conversations and really get to the why. And when you get to the why of, of transfer, so we call those triggering events. If you've been through any kind of SEPA training at the Exit Planning Institute, we talk about triggering events, right? Other people call it contingency planning. Um, but the why of the transfer should drive the definition of value. Uh, and for all you listeners, Mercer Capital does a great book on family business valuation that brings up all these subjects. Um, most families don't know that your valuation formula or metric can be different for different reasons. And when I put that on the table, they really scratch their head about why no one's shared that with them before. But it also makes it easier to talk about what the value would be and how it would be measured. So, so then it, it does bring up the fact that maybe not all family attorneys may be aware of the different scenarios for different uh, valuation metrics calculation. And therefore, maybe families need to seek you know, additional advice. Yeah. And, and like I said, I don't practice law anymore. Right. I don't draft these documents at all. And the, and the lawyers that my family businesses are engaging with are business lawyers and estate lawyers. And sometimes they're the same person. Often they're different. And sometimes they're in different firms and they don't talk to each other, which is silly because those documents have to walk hand in hand. Okay. And the bigger the shareholder group, the bigger the owners, the more documents have to walk hand in hand, because you have one operating agreement and one ownership agreement, but you may have 12 estate plans. And those estate plans have to coincide and work with the ownership of the shares that they have. Right. Right. Um, and so I teach that, you know, you got to have educated lawyers that work with family businesses because it is a little different. And, and coming from the legal world, when, um, when owners engage lawyers, they typically see us as a money drain <laughs> rather than a learned team member. And, when, and, and I'm, I work with my clients to say, hey, you need an advisory team. You don't need technicians, but you need an advisory team. And typically, I will walk the family through the questions of the whys and go through a list of questions with them and say, so if a family member is leaving because of death, how do you want the shares value, right? Well, and then we talk about the why. Then we talk about, okay, so now you have that value. How's it gonna be paid, right? Mm -hmm. So is it, and we get to the funding segment of it. And then we walk through that funding segment. And then we talk about how does it get communicated to the heirs? Does that valuation become a surprise to the spouse or children? Or should a valuation that establishes value based on triggering events, usually death or retirement are the big ones my clients want to focus on, be published on a semi-annual or annual basis or every three years? I think Mercer says don't go any longer than three years, which I kind of agree. 
right? So that it's not a surprise for those that are left to manage whatever it produces. Right. And, um, and one of the things I know uh, Mercer talks about is the fact that a lot of times these buy-sell agreements, um, owners may have had them done like, you know, eight, nine years ago, and nobody's looked at it, even though um, like their contracts with suppliers and customers tend to be reviewed and updated on a fairly regular basis. They don't do the same with their buy-sell agreements. Um, why do you think that is, and how do we get owners to um, you know, keep refreshing? And I guess maybe this is where the advisory team can can help can help if they have that. But you know, how should owners be thinking about the buy sell agreement? Not basically not forgetting about the buy sell agreement being reviewed and updated on a regular basis. So the so what we talk about is what in your business has I do it from an education standpoint. It's that's the only way I do it, and. Um, I try to talk to groups of owners in industry conversations so that they can get information as to the, why it's so important. Um, what I ask them to do is write down what has changed in their personal life and their business life in the last year. And then what has changed in their personal life and business life in three years? What's different, right? And what's different five years ago? And then I say, now, let's think about both. Does value matter and would it be impacted by those changes in one, three, and five years, right? And then we talk about why if that document just sits on a bookshelf or in a drawer and it's not looked at, it won't work. And so when I go in and I work with families, one of the, you know, one of the things we do is we do a document production list for me to review. I'm always so excited when the documents are only like three years old. I'm super excited. I'm like, woohoo, people that understand the process. What I typically see are documents that are at least 15 years old. And wills are, are like created from when the babies were babies, little kids under 10 years. Now they're 25 and 30, right? Um, when they made the wills, the business is worth, you know, $3 million. Now it's worth $25 million. Um, beneficiaries aren't correctly put in there. Fiduciaries are not, they're dead. I mean, they're no longer alive. Parents were going to take care of kids and that was going to be who was going to do it. They're not even here anymore. There's no one, you know. So, but more importantly, when we look at an operating agreement, <clears throat> an operating agreement must be addressed every single time when we're doing generational transfers because an operating agreement gets much more complicated when it goes from two people owning to four people owning to 15 people owning, right? The, the entry and exit clauses have to be clearly defined and valuation becomes extremely important. Right? right? And I see lots of agreements that don't allow people to leave. And ownership is actually a handcuff. It's not an opportunity. How do you, um, how do you justify to business owners why it's worth the cost of doing uh, business valuation? I show them what litigation costs. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, you know. Right. it's pretty easy. You can spend 
three. Okay. The first time you do evaluation, you're and it depends where you're physically located. I'm physically located in Cleveland, Ohio. First valuation for a company that may have, and most of my companies have a real estate company and an operating company. Almost all of them do, right? So, so, so if you have that set up, your valuation is going to cost somewhere between seven and fourteen thousand dollars, depending on how big your company is, how many issues there are, right? In New York City, that same valuation may cost fifteen to twenty-five thousand. And in LA, it's probably when you're in coastal states. Just the cost of living is higher, costs are more expensive. But let me compare that to litigation amongst multiple shareholders. When you, I spoke to a business in Cincinnati, Ohio, a year ago. They had brothers that had differing opinions on leadership and ownership between themselves and the next generation. When I got a call to come in and possibly mediate, each of the three brothers, had spent over $150,000 on litigation alone. And they were going to the appellate court for the third time. So, I mean, think about that. So, <laughs> yeah, it's not just the cost, it's also the human relationship. And they strain. weren't speaking to one another. Yeah, and yeah. now the cousins can't, you know, they're all teenagers and young adults. And they're like, well, what is, I mean, why would we want to be part of this? You guys are nuts. Right. Yeah. So what I say is, yes, you can do you can spend money. Right. Yes. It's an expense, but it's an education and it's important to the success of all three systems. How do you know you have the right key man policy for purchases if you don't know the value of your business? Right. How do you know you have any kind of structure for taxation prevention? if you don't know the value of the business. And so, and, the, and, the, and I really get into why would the next generation want to be shareholders if they don't know what they're holding, right? So in family businesses, it's gotta be, are we, are we owners by choice? It's a big conversation we have. Are we owners by chance? And if we're only owners by chance, which means we get it when they die. What if we don't want it? That's a big conversation, right? What if I have, you know, no desire to, to own a grocery store? I don't want to be part of that world. I'm a doctor. I'm in Europe practicing medicine. The business is here. It complicates my taxes. There's no money coming out of it. Please, God. Just let me give it back. Right? Right. So that's the stuff we talk about. And and if we can have learned conversations for people to make decisions, all of the work that that team can do as an advisor team is elevated. Now, how does valuation help when the situation where the board and the CEO sometimes are running into conflict because the CEO feels like, no, he or she is not getting advice from the board. The board is just beating them down, you know, with like ROI, you know, thing, ROI uh, questions. Um, how does valuation help in that situation, if at all? I think that when um, when a CEO, especially a non-family member CEO, right, which happens in families, like there there can be generational gaps. There can be nobody working in the company anymore. If what the family is doing 
is saying we have an expected rate of return of our investment of seven and a half percent per year. That's that's how we know our CEO is doing a good job. Well, it's not a publicly traded company, right? So does that ROI mean distributions of 7%? Does it mean value of shares go up 7%? Does it mean, and, and how are we measuring that? And my education process for families are, what does that mean? Wouldn't it be nice to know that even if the dividends aren't increasing by 7%, decisions and actions by your leadership team, which is led by your CEO, is resulting in an increase of value of the company shares by 7%. And I think that good shareholder stewardship must include knowledge of value. Even if family shareholders aren't harvesting it, if they are so detached that they don't understand what they own, it's more likely they'll jump ship. Right. And it, when it comes to value, um, most boards, uh, some board members may be looking at just a profit margin. Uh, but we tend to look at value from the, from the standpoint of multiples of EBITDA. Um, mm-hmm. What are some of the, you know, some of the things that the conversations as far as evaluation is concerned, uh, that should be uh, factored in when discussing um, looking at return on investment uh, impact on value versus, for instance, on dividend. Yeah. And so what we talk about is um, in both the boardroom, right? And in the family shareholder group is um, the why we're owning conversation impacts how we view valuation. What's the purpose and the metric we're going to use for success, Right. So in my world, we don't, we talk about multiple layers, right? Sometimes we talk about owning for tax purposes, like maybe we would keep a piece of property that's not generating a lot of money right now, because if we sold it, there's a huge amount of capital gains and it would be a problem, right? So we might be planning for valuation purposes, yes, we know that this piece of real estate is lowering our valuation computation in our real estate holding company, but we're holding it for tax planning purposes, right? We know we're going to do a, an exchange instead of a sale. So knowing those things is really important. Yes, multiples of EBITDA is important, but we also look at other things. We look at um, in family businesses, we may look at tax balance. Like where is this impacting our tax balance? Especially if we're looking towards any kind of liquidation event in the next five to 10 years, right? The other things we look at is sometimes EBIT is not our most important thing, depending on the lifetime of the shareholders. We might actually be looking for cash flow. Are we increasing dividends versus are we increasing EBITDA? Sometimes that doesn't go step in step. That gets very, that's a very complicated, educated decision, right? right? But that's where governance comes into play. So if the family governance says to the business governance, we need to have, I'm making this number up, 
We need the company to produce 3% more dividends and cash per year. And it goes because we have this many more shareholders and, and they need a return in dividends of X, right? So the family council chair then goes to the board and reports that metric. The board then has to understand all the machinations that go into valuation and cash flow and finances to determine if that's a reasonable ask by the family. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It's, what is interesting is uh, this whole concept of chief family officer and, and family board versus a business board and leadership board is it's it's really is is kind of an, another twist in the process that's that's usually not part of like you know the corporate world or you know the regular mm-hmm. business world. Mm-hmm. So, what is the mechanism? You know, how, how does that work? The, you know, the you know besides this, you know, there's a difference between the family reunion or family gathering and a an actual family governance board meeting. How does that normally work? And you know, what's the mechanism? And how do people get nominated to the family board? I, I imagine that just because you are a family owner uh, doesn't mean that you are on the board, unless maybe by default all all family members are part of the board, which will make decision making even more complex. And <laughs> yeah. Okay. So typically, so there's a spectrum of growth of the family business that evolves. So we start with. Most family meetings start with mom and pop or dad who owns telling kids what's going to happen with their ownership at the kitchen table. Call it the kitchen table meeting. We've all been there. We've been there when we don't own businesses. Mom and dad have a meeting, you know, A, B, C, and D. It's an informational meeting. It's not really a conversation. It's an informational. Come to this FYI commercial about your family business, right? Then as the next generation evolves into that, some families, not all families, some families start holding more regular family meetings where they put decisions on the table so that future shareholders have a voice, even though they don't own and they don't have a vote. They want them to learn about ownership and they want them to begin to visualize what ownership is and start thinking like owners, even though they're not owners. And to me, those are regularly scheduled kitchen table meetings. And we call those family meetings. And sometimes they grow beyond the kitchen table and they go into the boardroom or they'll go for a weekend family retreat, okay, or family reunion. As the shareholder group gets older and transfer decisions are getting made, typically families will start becoming more formal in what we talk about in the family side of things versus what we talk about in the business side of things. Some families start very young. Some businesses start very young. They're like first going to second. I see this the most when siblings are visualizing transfer to cousins because they know they have to become more formal to manage more voices. And then we start moving into more formal family meetings. Now, My experience with family businesses is they hate formality in general. They started, their grandpa started a business because they didn't want to work for corporations and we don't want all those rules, regulations. It just ties us down. It's more complicated. Until they start getting into many voices talking at once and many perspectives. Then they start having more formal needs for policies like when and how does family members get hired? Like, do you just have a job because you have an ounce of 
wart's blood in you? Or do you get a job because you're actually qualified, right? And then the biggest fight that family businesses have is pay and dividends. And typically board of governors or governance, like advisors and directors, boards of directors, don't want to manage the drama around those conversations. So they hire a professional family advisors to help them walk through the policy creation and understand how that shareholder group that's family owned needs to interface with the governance group for the business, right? And that evolution happens over time. The other thing is that same evolution happens in the business. I've seen really large, successful companies have no governance, none. And even they have a non-family CEO and nobody works there and they don't have governance and they can't figure out why their CEO doesn't listen to them. Well, they don't have a place to be listened to. CEOs don't have a place to report to or be managed if there's no governance. They don't want to report to 12 shareholders. Can you imagine that nightmare? Yeah, that's just, yeah, that's just a, a recipe for disaster. Too many um, cooks in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's one, um, one metric that I saw that um, I kind of want to get your perspective on. I'm not sure how uh, concrete or true the, accurate this is. And it's from the Family Firm Institute. They, have the, uh, they did apparently a survey in which they say that family businesses only have a 30% success rate through the second, from the first generation through the second generation, a 12% through the third generation, and only a 3% success rate through the uh, fourth and beyond generations. Um, have you seen that? And, and what, what's your take on, on that metric? Is it accurate? Is it not? What, what so that is metric is really old. <laughs> okay. And it was, their definition of failure was if the business was sold. We don't believe that anymore. As valuation experts, as family business advisors and business advisors, we no longer count liquidity as failure. And so our firm believes that families, as they look at ownership transfer and leadership transfer, need to evaluate for success the continuity of the business versus the continuity of wealth development and distribution. And if you liquidate a business entity, it does not make you a failure. Because some businesses get outdated, right? I mean, some of the most successful family businesses that we represent a family business in Boston, they've changed what they've done four times. Like what they produce or how they make money in a family business has changed in four times over a hundred years. Well, crap, that makes sense. Look at our business community changes and our world economy expansion and decrease over a hundred years. You have to be logical and get to an idea that our family is an enterprise, right? That we create wealth. How we do that shouldn't be defining us. It should be about how do we make decisions on what we invest in? How do we manage what we invest? And why are we investing collectively? Why do we wanna own a business together? 
And then if we do own a business together, what what's the why? And, and you're going to hear me say that a lot. So when we define the valuation metrics for family businesses and we look at that, why is a question that my clients just hear over and over again. A, why are, what, why are we looking at valuation? Is it because of death, divorce, disagreement, disaster, da- um, disability. Yeah, disability. disability, but also yeah. disillusion with, the, with right. being an owner? Like, I just don't want to be an owner anymore. It's not that I'm fighting. I'm not retiring. I'm not sick. It's a need for liquidity or a need to move on with their lives before retirement. So when we get to those whys, it can and often does impact how we value the company and how they get the money. There's two stages to valuation. There's the definition, right? And inside that definition, we look at what we're going to do to define the value of that stock as a majority owner, right? And then what are discounts that are applied based on minority status? And then are there additional discounts based on situation? Then we define how is it paid? Because everyone focuses on how are we defining the value, right? What number am I going to get? Very few documents talk about funding. That that is something I see. It's very disconcerting to me. Um, And how that works and how it's communicated to those that have a vested interest, whether they're owners or not, is critical to the success of the application of those documents, the use of them. Lawyers typically draft them without consulting with the CPAs and tax consultants. So it's only written from a legal standpoint. And then the tax advisors only look at it from a tax standpoint. There's no one looking at it from the functionality of the family relationship side. And that's usually where it falls on its face. This is where the board of advisors becomes critical because then you have a holistic picture at a forum where all these different specialists can uh, bring their perspective to bear and uh, you get a holistic picture. Yeah. And so in terms of the metrics, I think what, what you've mentioned so far, the, you know, the, the actual value and then the, the funding rate and I guess the funding source, are there any other metrics that, you know, that business owners or family businesses should be um, aware of or should be looking at on a regular basis of? Yeah, there's, so one of the things I'm running into in the last two years are documents that walk the issue of, do you have to be an working in the business to own shares? And, you know, it's kind of like religion. Everybody thinks they're right for their religion. <laughs> like, you know, I'm right because I'm Jew and this is how it looks. I'm right because I'm a Buddhist and this is how it looks. I'm right because I'm Catholic and this is how it looks. Everybody has something they, you know, they kind of shout from the mountain about, right? They have a philosophy. What I want to know is why did we make that decision? Why was it originally made? What are the benefits of that decision, right? And then what are the detriments? Because the further you go down the line of legacy, the less likely shareholders will be working in the business. 
So does working in the business only mean going to work and being present and, and like being a cashier in a grocery store? Does it mean you have to be management and a leader? Does it mean that you can work another job, but you have to put so many hours a year into stewardship activities of those shares in that company? Board, committee work, being an ambassador in the public eye, going and you know, being on boards. What does that mean, right? Like, so the why. And then as you move further down, are you excluding wealth from one of the branches? So if you have mom and dad inherited the business from their parents, right? And all the other siblings got nothing out of a family of five. That family then grew this business and then their sons came into the business and really grew the business, right? So now we have three sons, but only one son has any children working in the business. What happens to the two other brothers that don't, one doesn't have kids and one has kids, but they're, they're other professionals, they're dentists, they're insurance people. What happens to his wealth, right? Can the business buy him out so that there's cash for those children? Um, how does that impact the cash flow of the company and the funding? But more importantly, how does that separate the cousins from an emotional standpoint and a family standpoint? And does it force people to work at the company that don't want to be there, aren't qualified, and aren't going to put their heart and soul into it? Fantastic. Well, um, I want to uh, bring this then to a close. And um, so to quote uh, one of my favorite authors, Dave Allen, so getting it done. Um, what is the, based on the, uh, this information that you've provided, this knowledge that you've shared, what is the next immediate uh, thing that family business owners should do uh, when it comes to valuation uh, for, their, for their business? They should take their documents out, wipe off the dust, look at how long it's been since they've had them reviewed. Think about the changes in their family and business since the last time they did it and go talk to their advisors, their tax planner, their estate and business lawyer and say, here's all the things that have changed in my life since we did this last time. Should we amend these? Should we look at them? I think prevention is 20 times cheaper than reaction. And so if that costs you $2,000 to have that meeting. You probably saved yourself $20,000 in legal fees for not having it done right. My advice is you have a checkup, just like you have men have colonoscopies, they look for cancer, women have mammograms, they have physicals. Those legal documents, those governing documents need to be reviewed on an annual basis. It's cheaper, guys. It's so much cheaper. And figure out how to communicate that knowledge inside those documents to those you're leaving behind when you die. So it's not a surprise. That's great. Thank you so much, Amy. Wow. Yeah. That was, that's awesome and fantastic. Clearly you're very passionate about this and uh, we certainly appreciate your, your coming in and sharing your knowledge with us. How can people uh, follow your work or get in touch with you if they want to you know, hear more from you? So my contact information is uh, at Wirtz, W-I-R-T-Z, at the F-B-C-G.com. 
Um, and I'll send you that link so you can put it in the notes of the, right. pod, the podcast. Yep. That sounds good? Yep. That sounds great. That's Thanks, awesome. Guys. All right. Thank you, Amy. Uh, by the way, uh, folks, uh, you can go ahead and leave a comment on the show's uh, Facebook page. You can also go to the show's uh, website, and uh, we're going to have some more information about some of the books that Amy talked about. Mm-hmm.